This is an ABC podcast. Do you remember writing in your diary, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four? How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? Four. And if the party says there are not four, but five? Sometimes, Winston. Sometimes they're five. Sometimes they're three. Sometimes they're all of them at once. George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984 first hit bookshelves exactly 70 years ago, and it's been a bestseller ever since. It's had a remarkable ability to speak across generations. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. I want to spend today's program looking at three prescient works of fiction, works that not only seem to capture a mood at the time of publication, but that also cast decades ahead to hook so many of our fears and frustrations today. We'll start with 1984, then Brave New World, and finally the 1976 satirical film Network, which has only just been revived as a stage play in London and on Broadway. Let's begin with Orwell, 1984, and writer and journalist Dorian Linsky, author of the newly released book, The Ministry of Truth. Neither the past, nor the present, nor the future exists in its own right, Mr. Reality is in the human mind. Well, there's no other story I think, from the 20th century, which has had such a kind of broad influence, which has influenced the language to the extent that, you know, you could literally every day on Twitter, I see somebody using some language from 1984, a quote from 1984, all of which should diminish its power as a text, because obviously once so many of these ideas and phrases have become cliches, it should weaken the book. And yet it doesn't. And I found that when people have spoken to me about rereading it, and obviously I've read it many times, it does still have real weight and drive and integrity and power. That's a remarkable thing, that that nothing seems to take away from it. It was popular right from word go, wasn't it, when it was released in 1949 in the early stages of the Cold War. It's very popular again now, but there was a period in the middle there, wasn't there, in the 90s, when it was seen to be not as relevant. I mean, it's a relatively small dip, if you're actually thinking really sort of sustained sort of relevance through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I think it was only after the fall of the Soviet Union, which also coincided as you move through the 90s with this kind of tech utopianism and the idea that the internet was going to bring us all together and create more transparency and allow everybody to have access to accurate information. And it was a very optimistic time. And obviously, 1984 is not an optimistic book and so seemed less resonant then. It was still quoted a lot, but in more sort of specific terms. It's to do with, for example, the language of politicians. There's certain things in there that are timeless, that even in the best of times, they do describe the way politics operates. It's been claimed by all manner of political and social groupings over time. What is it about it that it can be claimed by both the right and the left? I think just early on, it's sort of power an almost sort of propagandistic power was acknowledged. And so everybody wanted a piece of it. And, and really the only people that turned against it were the Soviet Union and its sympathizers. The hard left had reasons to dislike Orwell. 
And obviously, Cold Warriors in the 1950s embraced it as a great kind of anti-Stalinist propaganda tool, which is not exactly what Orwell intended. But what really surprised me when you move something moving into the 60s is that you could have, you know, ultra-McCarthyites citing it, but also the Black Panthers and members of the New Left. And that sort of continues to be the case now, that there are people on the right, particularly on the kind of conspiracy theorist right, who love it. On Twitter, so many of these accounts which have Orwellian names, precisely the kind of thing that he would have distrusted because they're spreading lies. And so it's, it's a very peculiar thing that almost nobody wants to disown it. Nobody wants to sort of distance themselves from it. They all want a piece of it because they acknowledge its power. And they think, well, if this book is on our side and the sort of ghost of Orwell is on our side, this is going to be useful to us. Ultimately, you believe, don't you, that the book is about the difficulty that we have, our relationship with truth. I mean, it's about a lot of things, but I think right now it's the relationship with truth and how the truth is abused and how easy it is to make people believe things that aren't true. That seems to be the most powerful aspect of it. Not obviously technology, although technology plays a smaller role in it than I think a lot of people believe. But it has so many things in it, so many ideas. It's basically a kind of compendium of everything that Orwell had sort of learned and cared about over the previous 10, 15 years. So at any point in time, some of it's going to be useful. And now it is that theme of truth, which is what led me to that eventual title. I thought, yeah, this is what's important right now. As many people have pointed out, the current incumbent of the White House and his offsiders use terms like alternative facts, which sound very Orwellian in a way. But you talk about the Trump president, at least, as being Orwellian burlesque. Could I get you to unpack that for us? Well, Big Brother and the world of 1984 in general is a very specific response to totalitarianism, which was a new development at the time, relatively new. Certainly in Orwell's lifetime, he was grappling with it, you know, grappling with this new term that had been invented and what the connections were between the apparently very different worlds of Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, meant to be enemies most of the time, and yet they operated in surprisingly similar ways. And so you look at a figure like Trump, and obviously he doesn't have an ideology. He doesn't have intellectual discipline. He's much more of a kind of irrational, childish figure. And so I think it is important to say we're not living in 1984. He is not the same as Big Brother. However, where he overlaps with the novel and with a lot of Orwell's observations in his essays is this surreal disregard for what is true which has become, it happens a lot in, in Russia, in modern Russia, more, you know, in a different way to the, the old Soviet Union. The sense that it can lie in a very sort of careless, brazen way. It doesn't take an ideology for people to believe your lies. And I think that would have probably surprised Orwell. I, he felt that there had to be some great utopian scheme that would make people shelve their reservations and what they knew to be true to go along with it. And in Trump, you see someone who is offering sort of nothing but power and narcissism and I suppose a kind of tribal white identity to an extent. And so it's, it's kind of shocking that a figure this undisciplined and unintelligent could be wielding such power now because, you know, you say what you like about sort of Stalin and that era. They were really, they were very, very ruthlessly methodical and Trump is not. And what about the uh, the Chinese Communist Party? And I'm thinking particularly of its its social credit system and the large amount of tracking that they do, including facial recognition these days. How would they match up in, in Orwellian terms? 
Well, I mean, again, he, he could not have foreseen this technology. And the interesting thing about the word Orwellian is that we apply it things that Orwell could never have predicted. So it's more a sort of state of mind. You know, surveillance was obviously a theme. And in, in, in Orwell, it was telescreens and it was spies and it was these helicopters that hovered outside people's windows. And now we have facial recognition and all these other means of surveillance. And I think the recent anniversary of Tiananmen Square and the fact that this is still something that the Chinese government tries to sort of erase from history and tries to stop people talking about. I mean, that very much chimes with the kind of thing that the state would be doing in 1984 and Winston Smith's job at the Ministry of Truth, which is to rewrite history. Do you see 1984 having real resonance into the future? I mean, as we mentioned before, it's become popular again now. I think it became a bestseller again immediately after Donald Trump was elected. Mm. You know, so it's obviously in people's minds, but will it have relevance or will we see it having relevance into the future, do you think? Well, we've had 70 years. We've had people in 1949 saying this is so timely. I can't imagine this being as powerful in the future. And in the year 1984, there were many people going, well, look, this is a great book and it's taught us a lot. But clearly, we don't live in that. This 1984 is not the year that he was writing about, not that he ever posed as a prophet. But, you know, there was this sort of idea that, again, it would sort of fade out because there was such a peak of just sort of mania around that book in the year for obvious reasons. And yet here we are another 35 years on and it's relevant again. And I just think he makes so many different points in that book. That's what makes it so enduring is that there's so many aspects. And so you could spend, you know, an hour talking about the telescreen or the thought police or double thing. And they're all kind of, they're related, but they're all making a different point. And he just seemed to cover all the different ways in which an oppressive regime might function and how the worst aspects of human nature would allow it to function. And I just, I don't understand unless we manage to change human nature and therefore politics, how it can ever not be relevant. It's gone through so many phases already and, and people don't seem bored of it. Well, Dorian Linsky, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Anthony. Ladies and gentlemen, the distinguished author, Mr. Aldous Huxley. Brave New World is a fantastic parable about the dehumanization of human beings. In the negative utopia described in my story, man has been subordinated to his own inventions, science, technology, social Aldous Huxley wrote his seminal work in the early 1930s, a decade and a half before the arrival of 1984. It's also about a dystopian future world, but very different from that imagined by Orwell. Huxley's world is one of much more subtle enforcement and enslavement, of rampant consumerism and of endless distraction. Many people believe that Brave New World was actually more accurate in predicting major elements of the world we live in today. Among them is Scott Stevens, editor of the ABC's Religion and Ethics website and also the co-host of The Minefield. Well, if you think about it for a moment, the great threat within 1984 is a threat that's entirely external to human society. So it's the overweening, censorious, totalitarian state that tells you what to think, that tells you what to believe, that manufactures the economy of information so that you only have, you know, you have a, you have a deracinated form of speech. You have certain official forms of history. Much like Maoist China. Exactly like Maoist China. And here's where I think what was really at work within 
Orwell's great novel, was a fear of some of the tendencies that were emerging in the East rather than a prediction of what, what in fact was looming in the West. Huxley, I think, was far more attuned to the internal dynamics of Western culture. So, for instance, in Brave New World, you don't have to suppress the truth. You don't need an overweening state to try to hide the way that things really are from its citizens. You just need to drown citizens in distraction. Here's, again, Huxley had this remarkable way of describing what the media would become. He said the media would stop trading in information, and instead it would trade in sentiment. So his vision of the future of television, for instance, was what he described as the feelies. You tune in, you plug in, in order to feel, in order to be distracted. And that sense of constant distraction, I mean, that's one thing many of us talk about with regard to social media and our phones these days. That's exactly right. Huxley was the first to imagine something like an attention economy, where what people would want is a series of endless distractions from the worries and cares of everyday life. And it's then the use of drugs like Soma, which gives you a mild high, but the main purpose of it is just to distract you in the same way as sex might, as the media might, as certain forms of extracurricular activity would. And this drug Soma in the novel is, uh, it's required. People are obliged to take this drug. So it's a way of keeping the population docile uh, while they're also being distracted. That's exactly right. Soma takes the edges off. It takes off the highs, but it also takes off the low. So much so that this total form of both psychopharmaceutical and social life has the effect of filling one's daily experience with an endless series of preoccupations with what is fundamentally irrelevant. And here's where I think Huxley really enters into his own element. He saw the next frontier of capitalism's mode of Fordist production. He saw the next frontier of that being the media itself. So he refers, unlike totalitarian forms of propaganda, he saw democracy as requiring its own form of capitalist propaganda, which is you bury the truth in trivia so that people no longer go looking for what is true amid the flotsam of the true, the trivial, and the manufactured. The big question, I suppose, is why do we know so much about 1984? Why do we see that as the great prescient dystopian novel and not appreciate to the same extent the work of Huxley with Brave New World? I think it's a wonderful question. Why is it that 1984 shot back to the top of the New York Times bestseller list in the three months following the election of Donald Trump? Why were new productions of uh, 1984 suddenly being featured in playhouses and theaters all over the world? The reason, I think, Anthony, is very, very, very simple. Ever since the late 1970s, part of the moral culture of the media has been to point to bad guys, to identify who's at fault, to tell you what they did wrong, to array their audience against the real culprits, and then to tell you what you ought to think of them, to enact forms of public moral judgment, in other words. George Orwell fits neatly into that because the threat in 1984 is all external, always external enemies. Whereas Aldous Huxley, he's saying, we have been complicit in our own self-enslavement. We are the ones who bought into a culture of endless distraction. The fault, dear Brutus, lies not with our stars, but with ourselves. And I think that's precisely what Huxley is doing. We are co-participants in our own position of cultural servitude. And it's easy to see why that's an uncomfortable proposition for people to take on. 
That's exactly right, because if you no longer rely on external sources for your sense of internal feeling, if you can no longer be reliant on this system of distractions to take you away from the worries and cares of everyday life, then it means it's time to grow up and become a fully functioning, properly engaged democratic citizen. Orwell and Huxley were contemporaries, weren't they? They knew each other personally. What was the connection there? Yeah, it's actually very funny. And people forget, because Brave New World sounds like such a contemporary book, that Brave New World was written in 1932, or it was published in 1932. Uh, Orwell's book came much later. Huxley, of course, was older than Orwell. He was Orwell's French teacher at Eton College. It's a very, very strange, almost schoolmasterly relationship. Orwell was quite keen to get Huxley's approval of 1984. Uh, Huxley himself was quite approving of the book. He thought that there were some problems with Orwell's overall prose style. Uh, Huxley in every way was the better novelist. This strange rivalry that people set up between Orwell and Huxley as if they were warring cultural forces within their own times, that simply didn't exist. And it is there. I mean, if you Google Huxley and Orwell... You'll find lots of articles about uh, this this kind of supposed rivalry between Mm. them. Mm, Like a title fight between Orwell and Huxley. That simply didn't take place. Where it all comes from is a really interesting but a single paragraph in a book by Neil Postman from 1988 from memory. Who was a media theorist. Who was a media theorist and himself quite a good public philosopher. It's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death where he says something along the lines of what we've been talking about. Orwell envisaged a totalitarian future that we would be an enslaved people. Huxley envisaged a trivial future, where we would become essentially a trivial and distracted people. So that's where this rivalry comes from. I'm not saying that the rivalry isn't in fact there, but it's probably in the use that we are now making of Orwell's work, rather than any kind of actual friction between the two of them. Well, Scott Stevens from The Minefield, thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a fascinating discussion. My pleasure. And you're listening to Future Tense on RN, Radio National, across the Pacific on Radio Australia, CBC in Canada and RTE Radio 1 Extra in Ireland. I'm Anthony Fennell. And now, the distinguished television news commentator, Mr Howard Beale. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like at this moment to announce that I will be retiring from this program in two weeks' time because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. I'm going to blow my brains out right on this program a week from today. The 1976 film Network was wildly successful, commercially and critically. It earned its creator, Paddy Chayevsky, an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, his third, by the way. Network is often listed among the greatest movies ever made. And Dave Itzkoff knows the film inside out. He's a cultural reporter for the New York Times and author of the book Mad as Hell, The Making of Network and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies. I think that its author, Paddy Chayefsky, was essentially a very pessimistic person, a very sort of 
dyspeptic kind of guy, certainly by the time he wrote that screenplay. I think he was somebody who sort of believed that human nature, if left unchecked, tended towards its worst inclinations. And particularly when that was applied to television and the media industry as he looked at it in the 1970s, he could imagine it going to a lot of kind of dire places. And the movie, as successful as it was financially, as it, as much as it was praised artistically, the people who worked in media, who worked in news at the time, thought it was kind of fanciful and a little ridiculous. And I don't think those same people would say that about the movie today if they were around and watching these things side by side. I mean, it was clearly an exaggeration, as you say, wasn't it? You know, it it was a very dark satire. People, I think, forget that it was intended to be humorous. But did, yes. did Chayefsky, did he mean it to be prophetic or was he mostly critiquing his own times? No, I th- well, I think his opinion, his reaction sort of vacillated from day to day, certainly once the movie became successful and he was getting a lot of praise as a kind of prophetic uh, figure. I think that was a little bit hard for him to take. And I think he would sort of give you different answers depending upon when you asked him. But I think I think you're right in the sense that he did intend it for it to be funny and he was using media and television news as a kind of microcosm for all of society. He was just sort of honing in on one little slice of it and a part of the world that he knew well because he had worked in television as a TV screenwriter before he took off as a filmmaker. So that was a world that he at least had some experience in and he felt he could kind of use as a, a, you know, just a, a sort of sample size to show you, well, you know, here's what happens when people become completely disconnected from each other and only interested in sort of pursuing profit and and going after the lowest common denominator, etc. But certainly uh, the things that he foresaw in media and especially in news media were were pretty on point. It also speaks on a deeper level, doesn't it, about the infantilization of society in general and almost the subjugation of empathy to entertainment. Is that why it continues to be such an important film today? Is that why it has relevance today? Well, I think it's kind of a fascinating film to watch now because, of course, it was created in in an era where, at least in America, there were only three major broadcast networks. There was no cable TV news to speak of at all. There was no internet whatsoever. And yet, uh, so many of the lessons that it has and the messages that it has are completely applicable to a kind of 2019 media environment. The way that emotion completely overruns a kind of fact-based delivery system and also the way that, uh, you know, larger and larger corporations kind of subsume, you know, these journalistic entities and completely demolish their mission in, in the name of, you know, becoming more profitable, becoming more more able to grab wider and wider audiences with tawdrier and sleazier devices. All of that, I think, is, you know, it seems so far-fetched and that's what offended people at the time, but I mean, we just accept it without even a second thought today. The most famous scene in the film is about anger. It's where the character Mm. of the demagogic Howard Beale, the newscaster, urges the American people to rise up. Let's take a listen to that. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. 
I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! David Skoff, that call to anger in and of itself, not matched by any determined course of action, that feels very familiar, doesn't it, in this era of strident populist politics? Oh, absolutely. I think that, I mean, that's part of the message of the film or one of the ideas that Chayefsky uh, wanted to get at, certainly, that the power in particular that television had then and has now as a platform to, if you if you just offer it over to somebody to vent their spleen and kind of, you know, rage wildly, that it's so dangerously potent that communicating that message directly into, you know, millions of households and, and living rooms and just the, you know, again, and the, the the power and the danger that that can possess, and of course, uh, the audience of the audience of network is sort of in on this additional layer that we, as viewers of the film, we know that Beale Howard Beale is slowly going insane. He's almost completely lost his mind at this point in the film, and yet to the viewing audience in the film of network, he seems to be completely sane. That he seems like he's somebody who's making a lot of sense in terms of the things he's complaining about and the fears that he has and is passing along to them. It's, it's kind of a dark joke, as powerful and enduring as, uh, as that mad as hell speech is, that we know as viewers we're listening to sort of the unhinged rant of a, a lunatic. And there are quite a few uh, contemporary world leaders in whom you can see uh, some of that, that Beale attitude and that Beale technique. I have absolutely no comment at this time. Uh, <laughs> perhaps, yes, yes. Perhaps there are others that have, uh, you know, in some way or another adopted that methodology, no question. And, and you know, and Beale comes to it sort of accidentally uh, in his own weird, organic way. I think other people are certainly doing it much more pragmatically and deliberately. And, you know, it's not only leaders, it's, you know, media figures, it's broadcasters, people who presumably you know, they know the power and the danger of the field they work in. They are supposed to be, we once believed, operating within sort of ethical guidelines. And uh, those all, you know, went out the window long ago. Uh, certainly, you know, well after Network, when Network seemed like kind of a, a high-class uh, joke, that's part of what it was warning about. It was telling people there are no adults here. There's nobody at sort of the top of the architecture calling balls and strikes and saying, you're misbehaving and you can't do this. You know, once people start to, you know, loosen the guardrails and take them away, that there's just no going back for society. And that's applicable in a lot of different arenas. You said earlier that Chayefsky uh, was deeply pessimistic about the world. When he was writing the screenplay for Network, America was still overcoming the pains of, of the disastrous Vietnam War campaign and also Watergate. How much of yes. that disillusionment do you think seeped into his writing and his frame of mind? Well, I think definitely the, the effects of Watergate and seeing all those hearings broadcast on television and how powerful that had been, that experience had been for Americans. Even a few years earlier, things like the 1968 Democratic Convention, which, you know, descended into a certain amount of violence, and that was broadcast on TV. Those kinds of things worried him. But Chayefsky was kind of fearful about a little bit of everything. If he had had access to the Internet and to Twitter, uh, I mean, it would have absolutely 
absolutely ruined him because he was somebody who just, you know, read all the newspapers and obsessed over all the headlines and feared about the Middle East and feared about, you know, corporations buying up independent uh, businesses and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Literally anything that you could probably be worried about as, a you know, an educated upper class man of uh, the 1970s, he probably was afraid of it. And he, you know, that mad as hell speech, you know, before it goes completely off the rails. I mean, he is codifying a lot of the things that, that he personally is worried about. Now, I mentioned right at the beginning of this show that Network has been revived for the stage with Breaking Bad's Brian Cranston in the role of Beale. That's right. What does that revival tell us about the relevancy of Chayevsky's original story? I think it reminds us about how powerful and enduring it is. It's not a play where they have updated any of the time elements or changed anything to make it more modern. And you never even really bat an eyelash. You never feel necessarily like you've been transported back in time. You feel like you are watching something that is just as applicable and could be taking place right now if you just you know threw in maybe a couple more uh, contemporary references. Dave Itzkoff from the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy ratings. Shooting a broadcaster because of his or her ratings. I don't know about you, but it makes me mad as hell just thinking about it. That's Future Tense for another week. Karen Savanovitz was my co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.